I'd invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, uh, to Psalm 22. Our scripture uh, passage this morning is going to be the first 20 verses, Psalm 22, verses 1 through 20. I'll be reading this passage from the English Standard Version translation. Hear the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Let's pray. Our God and Father, it is your Holy Spirit who has given us this word. It is your Holy Spirit who can illuminate our minds and hearts to understand it and to receive it, to believe it, to trust it, to obey it. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to this passage, I want to remind you the context in which we're actually looking at Psalm 22. Throughout this year, we've been looking at the idea that Jesus himself taught his apostles that the Old Testament scriptures actually bear witness to and preach Christ. And so through this year, we've been looking at all the different passages. The word all is an exaggeration. We've been looking at a number of the Old Testament passages that actually testify to who Christ is, uh, both in types and in symbolism and in redemptive themes Uh, and in prophecy. And we have moved through the books of Genesis and Exodus, uh, the first five books, 
moving beyond the writings of Moses to now look at what God gave to David in terms of preparing for the Messiah to come into this world. We can almost speak, as it were, of the theology of David concerning Christ, what David was foretold by God about Jesus Christ. And we find this in a number of places within the Psalms that David wrote And the New Testament describes David, the the king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as a prophet through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. And so with respect to this, we've looked at several of the kinds of things that the Psalms have presented to us describing the mission of Christ, the Son of God, coming into this world. So, for instance, out of Psalm 40, uh, we looked at how it was prophesied that Christ would come and offer his own perfect and obedient life as a sacrifice that would replace all of the imperfect sacrifices of the law of Moses under the priest of Levi. And then we looked at Psalm uh, 110, where not only does Christ come to replace the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood, he comes to replace the Levitical priesthood because God had designated that the Christ would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Not an imperfect priesthood, but a perfect priesthood that would endure forever. Uh, Then we considered how the Old Testament predicts that when the king of Israel would come, the very son of God, he would be opposed by the Gentile and Jewish rulers of the time. We we saw this out of Psalm, Psalm 2. And how Christ was opposed and persecuted and rejected by the leaders of the world, the world into which Jesus came. And now we're going to consider Psalm 22, uh, the first part of Psalm 22, the first half of Psalm 22, where the theme that we're going to see here is really the theme of the crucifixion of Christ. That's what the first half of this psalm is all about, the crucifixion of Christ. Now, I want us to appreciate that this psalm itself is really two parts, up through verse 20 and then from 21 to the rest. The first half really does deal with the crucifixion of Christ. The second half deals with what takes place after the crucifixion, the triumph and victory of Christ in terms of his resurrection. There is so much within Psalm 22 that we're going to spend several weeks looking at it, several messages looking at it. And today we're going to focus upon just the first half, and we're going to look at only one of the major themes of the first half, which is how this psalm predicts the crucifixion of Jesus as a witness and a testimony to the supernatural character of the Word of God given by a supernatural God in terms of his son who came into this world to provide a supernatural salvation that will save to the uttermost all those who will trust in him. I want us to appreciate what this means for us as believers. We have a trustworthy Bible. One of the reasons why we know that scripture is trustworthy is because of its supernatural character. That supernatural character of Scripture is nowhere better evidenced than when we see 
prophecy given long before Jesus came into this world fulfilled when Jesus actually comes. Now, we're talking about genuine prophecy here. We're not talking about Edgar Cayce or Gene Dixon uh, or Nostradamus or the Celestine Prophecy or any of those kinds of things that have been part and parcel of the last 30 to 40 years in American culture as supposedly a testimony to somebody being able to predict what the future is all about. None of those various so-called prophecies ever proved to be accurate in terms of their so-called predictions. There's something quite different going on with respect to the Scriptures and something quite different going on with respect to Psalm 22. Because in Psalm 22 we have a number, a a group of very specific prophecies about Christ that if you were to see these, apart from knowing that they were the Old Testament, you would be thinking that these things were actually written in the New Testament because of the close, even precise fulfillment of that which is prophesied and that which actually happened to Christ when he was crucified. In fact... The great Baptist theologian and pastor and preacher, Spurgeon, has described it as a photograph. He has said this psalm is a photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, uh, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory. What in the world is a lacrimatory? It's a small little bottle that the ancient Romans and Greeks used to use at funerals to capture people's tears. I didn't know that. I had to look it up. But Spurgeon says that this passage is like a a lacrimatory, capturing the tears, the suffering, the groanings of Christ, as well as being a memorial of his expiring joys. And so Psalm 22 is like a picture in words of what happened to Jesus when he was crucified but a picture that was taken a thousand years before Christ came into this world. That's the witness to the supernatural power of the Word of God. King David, living a thousand years, ten centuries before his descendant, the son of David, the greater son, the greater David, Jesus would come. A thousand years ahead of time, predicting something that the ancient world of David's time never knew, never understood, had not yet conceived, and that was death by crucifixion. It was another five to 700 years before we have historical evidence that anyone was ever crucified, first by the Persians, then adopted by the Romans. And so what is the objective of this message this morning? It's to once again to give to you as a believer that profound confidence in the supernatural power of the Word of God, the supernatural nature of the Word of God. Because if this Word is true, then there is a God in heaven who's given it. And therefore, the testimony of this Word is true then concerning His Son. And that Jesus is truly the Savior of those who will trust in Him, truly the Savior of us who trust in Him, from our sins that separate us from God. The objective this morning 
is to remind you of why you can have confidence in the Word of God. A thousand years before Christ came, the Word of God was proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. Now, in terms of looking at this picture, there are five major groupings of events that we can see that are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, First of all, there is what happens at the very beginning of the crucifixion with respect to what the Romans were doing to Jesus. Then secondly, what's described here are the physical effects of a crucifixion. A thousand years before it happened in the Roman Empire. Thirdly, we see described the antagonism of the Jewish leadership against their own Messiah. Uh, Fourthly, the mockery of all of those who were present surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. And then fifthly, uh, the end of the life of Christ and what Christ experienced upon the cross as he was dying for our sins. So what this psalm shows us, although it's Jesus who calls attention to the fact that this psalm is something that believers should look at, the apostles should look at, the disciples should remember after he died, although he calls attention to it by virtue of what he says in his own crucifixion, it is clear that what takes place in the crucifixion, what took place in this psalm predictively, is not anything that the disciples or Jesus himself could ever have engineered to have taken place. There's no contrivance here, but rather the testimony that what took place is what God foretold was going to take place, what God had foreordained should happen concerning his son. Only a book written by a supernatural God could ever contain supernatural prophecy that would actually come true. Now, first of all then, what happens at the very beginning of the crucifixion? uh, What the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, actually do to Christ? Now, it's an interesting fact about the first 20 verses of Psalm 22 that the uh, order of the psalm is reversing the order of what actually takes place in the crucifixion because the psalm begins at the end of the crucifixion uh, and you have to go all the way to verse 16 to find the beginning of the crucifixion events. So that's where we're going to go, to verse 16 to begin with because what we see there is Christ prophetically describing what happens to him as he is being crucified. Jesus says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. Now, the term dog there is clearly a pejorative. But in the ancient world, at the time of Jesus, the Jews referred to all Gentiles who were their enemies as dogs. And so the designation here, prophetically and poetically, is that Jesus is describing the fact that it's the Gentiles who are surrounding him and it's the Gentiles who are doing this to him. And, of course, the Gentiles are the Romans and the soldiers who are the occupying force in Israel at the time of Christ. Jesus is saying that a company of these soldiers are encircling him and they're surrounding him as they perform this execution. 
Further in verse 16, Christ says, They have pierced my hands and feet. Of the several ways that the Romans uh, would secure victims to the cross, driving large spikes through their hands and through their feet was one of them. Of the several ways, uh, rope was often used to make sure their arms were there. But almost invariably, invariably to to exaggerate, to intensify the torture of the death, they would drive stakes, large iron stakes, into the hands or just behind the palms. To, to, we get the word excruciating from crucifixion to describe how incredibly painful this torture was. That's what they were doing to Christ. Then in verse 17... Again, we're talking about what they did to Jesus. He says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. It was customary that the victims of crucifixion would be crucified without clothing, crucified naked. Thus, people would stare and gloat at these naked figures upon the cross. Likewise, though, Jesus could look down at his unclothed body and see the tightness of his skin across his naked body, and there the bones would be far more evident. The skin tightness happens during crucifixion because of the severe dehydration that takes place with respect to the body, making the bones far more prominent. And further, in the very nature of crucifixion, Breathing becomes extremely difficult, forcing the lungs to take deep, gulping, gulping breaths, causing the rib cage to be far more prominent, far more visible in the extremely labored breathing of what a crucifixion victim goes through. And Christ is prophetically describing these very things that are taking place with him. Then Jesus describes further what the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, do around him. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Notice two things take place. They divide my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. In John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, John records the details this way. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's extremely important to realize that what the soldiers did with the clothing of Jesus is not anything that the disciples or Jesus could ever have contrived to have had happened. It was totally beyond their power to control these historical events taking place around the cross. Rather, the Roman soldiers did exactly and precisely what God had decreed in prophecy was going to happen. 
Now, the second group of particulars involve further aspects of the physical suffering that Christ experienced during his crucifixion. So we come down to verse 14. Here's Je- here Jesus says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, medical science has looked at crucifixion and the physical dimensions of crucifixion, and they understand what a crucifixion would entail with respect to the victim. And this description that Jesus gives here is a perfectly accurate, though non-medical description, of what he experienced. There is dehydration. Uh, The shoulders get pulled out of their sockets because of the weight of hanging upon the cross. The heart rate is highly accelerated from all of the stress, the pain. The victim's strength evaporates as the crucifixion continues because dehydration is a very real effect of being crucified. And it causes an extreme dryness within the mouth so that the one who's being crucified has an unquenchable kind of thirst. And then death does come. Jesus experienced all of these things, especially dehydration, the extreme thirst. Uh, In John's gospel, John writes about this extreme dehydration in terms of thirst. John 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, He writes, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he says, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Now, the particular scripture that John is referring to comes from Psalm 69, verse 21. We read this. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, you and I think of vinegar customarily made from apples. But in Palestine, vinegar was made from grapes. Vinegar was allowing a wine to go sour. And that's what they lifted to the lips of Christ. The point here is that what happened to Jesus precisely fulfilled what the scriptures had forecast in the Psalms of David. Thirdly, we have another set of particulars with respect to the presence and the antagonism of the Jewish leadership. Jesus speaks of this in verses 12 to 13. He says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, here we have the belligerent and antagonistic and powerful Jewish leadership described metaphorically as bulls, like the strong bulls, like the strong bulls of Bashan. And their antagonism toward Christ is like that of a hungry lion going after its prey. A ravenous lion is tenacious 
in going after its victim. And so were the chief priests. Uh, Pilate was ready to declare Jesus innocent and wanted to release him. But in John's Gospel, we read this. Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And with that political pressure put upon him, Pilate capitulates to the ravenous, antagonistic hunger of the Jewish chief priests and scribes to put Jesus to death. And fourthly, we have the mockery of all the people being predicted, the mockery of those surrounding the crucifixion and seeing Christ put to death in this way. So in verses 7 and 8, Christ says this, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Quote, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So whether it's the spectators who are passing by, or the Jewish leaders, or the Roman soldiers, or even the thieves who are being crucified with Christ, all who were there, apart from the women who were disciples and the Apostle John, everyone else who was there was involved in mocking Christ. With respect to those who were spectators passing by, uh, Matthew's Gospel tells us about this in chapter 27, verses 39 and 40. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, just like the prophecy says, wagging their heads. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross mocking Christ in those words. And then we have the mocking of the chief priest and scribes described. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him, come, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Then the priest used almost exactly the same words that we find in Psalm 22. Quote, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. We also have the case that the Roman soldiers were mocking Christ. Luke records this in Luke chapter 23, 36 to 37. Coming up to him, offering him sour wine, they said, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. Then those who were crucified with him. Matthew 27, 44 reads this way. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with these same words. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him and saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourselves and us. So what happened to Christ while he was being crucified precisely matches what we see stated prophetically in the second part of verse 6 in Psalm 22, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Now that reminds us, reminds us of what Isaiah the prophet says 
some two and a half centuries after David, Isaiah the prophet, around 730 B.C., says this, Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In 1804, the hymn writer Thomas Kelly described it this way in one of his hymns. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. And the second stanza, tell me, ye who hear him groaning, Was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Now, what Jesus experienced through the physical afflictions imposed upon him by sinful human beings and then the abusive words of their mocking him was very terrible in and of itself. But what most certainly earned Jesus the title, Man of Sorrows, is what Jesus endured in the final hours of his life upon the cross. And that's described for us at the first of Psalm 22 in the first two verses. They speak about the end of the life of Christ upon earth. What was Jesus experiencing as his life ended. We read the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now the Apostle Matthew describes how these words were fulfilled. Matthew twenty-seven, forty-five. He says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the gospel accounts, we know that the crucifixion lasted from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. as we reckon time. We reckon time from midnight to noon, from noon to midnight. The Jews reckon time from sunrise to sunset, from sunset to sunrise. And for them, they would express it this way, that the crucifixion began about the third hour, the third hour after sunrise, so about 9 a.m. for us. So the sixth hour would have been high noon, as we would reckon time. So from 9 until noon, the crucifixion took place under the full light of day. But from noon until 3, from the 6th until the ninth hour, uh, 
The crucifixion took place under darkness as dark as night. So when Christ says that he cries out by day and he cries out by night, he's given a poetic description of how half of the time upon the cross he's in the full light of day. But in the final three hours, he's under darkness as dark as night. The greater point, though, is this. He cries out, but he has no rest. He is not delivered or saved from his suffering. He describes that experience as that of being forsaken by God. Jesus, who had always lived in perfect fellowship, perfect communion with his heavenly Father, he now experiences that fellowship as broken. He now feels the painfulness in his soul of being alienated from God. This is how the New Testament describes the meaning of what Christ was suffering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. Romans 8.3 By God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. 1 Peter 2.24 And Christ Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Christ was forsaken by God as God made Christ the sin offering, as God laid our sins upon Christ, as God placed Christ under the curse of the law, as God placed His own Son under the divine condemnation of holy justice, and God placed Christ there in our place. What this confirms is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The kind of death that Jesus died was foretold a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22, the Psalm of David. Jesus was prophesied to die by crucifixion. So here's the conclusion. Here's what we need to take away for, from this. A thousand years before Christ came into the world, God foretold David, this is how the Messiah is going to die. The suffering and death of the Messiah by crucifixion predicted ten centuries before it happens. No one could humanly engineer this prediction and its fulfillment. Here we have solid witness and testimony to the supernatural power of the Bible, which testifies to a supernatural God, which validates the mission of Christ as God's only Son coming into this world 
to die in the place of sinful human beings so that we would know there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. For us as Christians, this gives us again our great confidence in the word of God from the living God concerning his son. For those who haven't placed their faith in Christ, consider this. A supernatural God has given us a supernatural book about a supernatural Savior who can save to the uttermost all those who turn to him and come to him in faith. The Scriptures the Holy Spirit, Christ himself would say, turn to Christ and be saved. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for the power of your word, for the confidence that we can have in your word. And we pray that we who know you would trust it always as we trust Christ. We pray for any who don't know you that they would hear the voice of Jesus saying come unto me and rest. Find eternal rest in trusting in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.